1 Corinthians chapter 5. Before we hear from the Lord, let's ask his blessing upon the, the reading and the hearing and the preaching of his word. Let's pray together one more time. Dear Lord, our Heavenly Father, we come again before you. Lord, we are, uh, uh, the, the desire of our heart is to be humbled before you, to be submissive to your word. As we sit under it, Lord, we pray that you would indeed have your way with us, that your spirit would work with your word in our hearts, uh, and that it, your word would not return to you void, Lord. We pray, accomplish your desired task. Teach us, challenge us, uh, Lord, refresh us, and reassure us of your love, of the truths wherein they are found. And Father, we ask that you would indeed give us a great appetite for your word. And we pray this all in the name of our mighty Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Beginning in chap, uh, verse 1, I'll read through the entire chapter, 13 verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, please give your... Full attention, this is the word of our God. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant? Are you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual immoral people, Not at all meaning the sexual immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, uh, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders is not is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge god judges those outside purge the evil person from among you so far the reading of god's word may he indeed add his blessing uh, to it as we come to chapter five uh, of first corinthians working through this in our study uh, we see that at chapter 5, 1 Corinthians makes a shift. There's a shift in the letter. Uh, we've seen in the first four chapters the appeal to abandon the wisdom of this age, the wisdom of the world that is prevalent in the, uh, in the church of Corinth in the first century. And Paul has encouraged them to move from that to what is truly wise, truly powerful, 
the word of God, the preaching of the Christ, the gospel. Paul has encouraged them to move, to make this move. And we've seen in these chapters that their analysis, the Corinthians, their analysis, including their analysis of teachers and ministers, and indeed the ministry as a whole, and her minister, the church's ministers like Paul and Apollos, was to be done how? It was to be done in light of God's wisdom in the cross of Christ. Paul has explained to them, we have seen the grounding of the church, right? Again, which is the preaching of the cross. And that her members were what? They are a temple of the Holy Spirit, being grown and built into a holy house wherein which God dwells. And we've seen Paul make this clear contrast between the church and the world. In chapter 5, Paul turns to talk from those general principles, those general needful things. He turns from that to talk about more specific issues uh, that indeed needed to be addressed. And the first issue that he turns to, the first serious problem that he addresses, is a situation involving a man there in the church who is living with, who has, is sexually involved with his stepmother. Paul had been made aware of this problem. And he'd been made aware of the fact that there was nothing being done about it in the church. And it's curious that the weight of severity that we see here from the Apostle Paul is much more towards the lenient attitude of the church about this issue than the guilt of the offender. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but that's where the weight of Paul's admonition and correction is. The man is in question that he's referring to is never mentioned by name. Uh, the stepmother of this individual whom Paul doesn't mention, is probably not a believer and certainly not a member of the church. But Paul condemns the conduct of the church and their lack of action to discipline this member. That is the bigger problem here. And this is a key passage for the church and has been for the church down through time. Uh, you'll all remember, uh, possibly from your history lessons, uh, those three marks that were born out of the Reformation that identified what is a true church, right? What is a true church? And they listed three marks uh, that identify what a church is. A true church must what? It must be engaged in the pure preaching of the gospel. A true church must uh, have the right administration of the sacraments. And a true church must have right practice of church discipline, right? So preaching, sacraments, and discipline, these are the three marks that have been rightly identified uh, as marking out what a church is. And so this passage this morning, 1 Corinthians 5, uh, really is key in our, in our understanding of that and improving that last mark, right? The appropriate discipline of the church, the appropriate church discipline. We can't forego any of these marks. They still hold true today. The Reformed Church has seen in this passage uh, mandating church discipline as that third mark of a true church. We have here a command to what? A command to excommunicate a man from the church who was a professing Christian, right? He goes, calls himself a brother. And at the same time, he's living in this willful sin, autonomously, sinfully. He was openly doing something, it says, if you, if you notice, that even the pagans, Paul says, saw as shameful. Right? The church is always, of course, a place for sinners, to come, sinners to come and sit under the ministry of the word and to be reminded of the law and of the gospel. And that there is grace available for the struggling sinner, one who is struggling with their sins. 
But those who are hardened and unrepentant, even after they are confronted, Paul says they must be removed from the church. Why? For the, to protect the church, to protect the name integrity of Christ, and to protect the sinner. And again, you may have not noticed or paid much attention to this in the past, uh, but in chapter 5, Paul admonishes the Corinthians uh, to not judge the outside world. Right? To not judge the outside world. But he says, what about the church? He says, they are believers. They belong to Christ. And therefore, they can no longer live like the pagans that they once were. And so as we look at this text, we can see as the main point, um, really it's drawn from verse 7, is that because we are clean, because we are new, we are to take care to protect the purity of Christ's church. We are to take care to protect the purity of the church. Why? Because we are clean. We are new. Corinthians, as we see, were letting uh, impurity defile and pollute the church of Christ by this particular issue and by not dealing with it. This was dangerous. It was dangerous. It was dangerous for the individuals who were sinning and for the church as a whole. And we too, brothers and sisters, even now, even we must take care to maintain the purity of the church, to protect the name of Christ and to protect his people. Of course, there's a danger in failing to do this very thing. Uh, There are challenges, of course. Challenges coming from all around us that challenge biblical fidelity, right? Our, Our fidelity, our faithfulness, our adherence to scripture. There are challenges all around us in the culture regarding sexual purity, regarding the value of life, regarding defining and defending marriage as a picture of Christ and his church before the world. And we find here in this passage the common pattern that we see so often in the New Testament, in its admonition, in its teaching. We are told what is true, and then we are told what to do. I think it was Brian Chapel who I first heard that from. We're told what is true, and then therefore what to do, right? The, uh, the indicative and then the imperative. And we learn here, we see this in the passage, and we need to learn again and be reminded again the same point that Paul gave the Corinthians. And that is because we are clean and we are new, we are to take care to protect the purity of the church. And so as we look at this passage, we see it uh, break out in a number of ways. And the first thing that we'll see in verses 1 to 3 is the problem that they were facing. The problem that they were facing. And then Paul will discuss in verses 4 to 6 and then 8 to 13 the prescription for their practice, right? We see the problem they're facing and then the prescription that Paul gives for their practice, what they should be doing. And then finally, that key hinge, that point in verse 7, uh, is the point of their purity, the point of their purity. So first, the problem they were facing. We see this in verses 1 to 3. And we see that Paul here, he is aghast. He is disappointed in the church, in its pastors and its elders, that they have avoided dealing with this issue. Word has gotten back back to him. This is a known issue. Nothing is being done. And so Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 5, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. It is actually reported, he says, and that word sexual immorality there is the word uh, pornea. It's the word we get uh, pornography from. And it's a word that's related to the word prostitution. 
And it means unchastity. It means fornication. It means various kinds of unlawful acts, either, rather, either moral or legal. It's even used of idolatry. Right? We've heard of, think of the Old Testament and the condemnation that comes from the prophets of the adulterous people of God. Right? They're the adulterous people of God because they're cheating on the Lord. It's, it's an idol for them. What this man is doing was known publicly. It was deplorable. Even the pagans viewed it as a scandal. And the church did nothing about it. Roman law condemns this behavior as we read the law of, the, of that time period. Leviticus 18, Deuteronomy 22 specifically condemned this practice as well. And we have to remember in this context, uh, remember the Corinthian culture was infamous for its licentiousness. And they found this practice. They found this man having his father's wife offensive. Right? So this had to be something rather bad if it caused the pagans of Corinth to blush at it. And so it's interesting what Paul is doing here. Again, in this, in this admonition, in this chastisement, as it were, uh, he does something that he does all the time. He is, he, he's defining for them who they are. Right? And I don't know if you notice this, but look again. He, he does here by distinguishing um, uh, th- them as no longer pagans or Gentiles. Right? He makes that reference there when he says, uh, the kind that is not tolerated even by pagans. Right? And so this word that he used there for, for pagans uh, is the word that we get, we, is, is usually translated for Gentile. Right? It means non-Jews. And these Gentile converts, Paul is saying in saying this, in this distinction, they're no longer Gentiles. Right? They're no longer Gentiles. Paul's emphasis is on the newness of the believer. They are no longer pagans. They are now in Christ. They are the covenant people of God. And their behavior should reflect that new status. They were Gentiles. They are now Christians. And therefore they must cut themselves off from, the, from their pagan past and their pagan practice of the past. And he says, you, in verse 2, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Right? To, to, to make things worse, not only is this gross behavior going on, this pagan blushing behavior going on, but their attitude was that it wasn't, they weren't repulsed by it as they should have been, but they're boasting. Right? They're, the word is puffed up there. They're puffed up in this sin. And you're arrogant, you're puffed up, shouldn't you be mourning, he says. And then he says in verse 3, For though absent in the body, I am present in the spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. This is the problem, right? The elders of the church had done nothing about the situation. And they were there. Paul, who is away, has judged the matter. This was the problem they were facing, the sin and this pridefulness in the sin and the failure to love Christ and his church by inaction in regards to this sin. This was the problem they were facing. And we move on to see the prescription that Paul gives, the prescription for their practice. In verse 4 it says, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that, by, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Right? This is a sentence as we work through these texts and we look at 
try to translate them in the Greek and break them apart of, and the flow of how they should come out in English to convey the meaning. And it's a, this, is a, this is a difficult couple of sentences um, in Greek. The grammar is difficult. The structure is difficult. But it's clear enough what he's saying at the end of the day. Paul gives this serious command to remove this man from fellowship. That's what we call excommunication. It's not just procedural, procedural or judicial what is being prescribed here. There are spiritual consequences to what they're being told to do. And the point is to remove this person from the safety of the church. The man is given over to the consequences of his sin and to dwell in the world where Satan dominates. Right? This is a, a, a quote by uh, the commentator Leon Morris. He's given over to the world where Satan dominates, to dwell there. Right? And how does, Satan, uh, how does Paul describe or view Satan elsewhere in his writings? He is the destroyer, right? He is the destroyer. And yet, he describes him as an animal who is destined to be destroyed, right? waiting for the appointed end, right? the destroyer who's waiting to be destroyed. So the result of removing this individual, this sinning man from the church, is that his flesh would be destroyed and that his spirit would be saved on the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, right? Flesh destroyed, spirit saved. Again, this has been understood in various ways by different people throughout history, translating it. But probably the best way to understand what's being said here is that the person who is excommunicated Because they were put out of the church, they suffer all the consequences of their actions. Spiritually, emotionally, physically, relationally. And the goal of all of this is what? It's that he will be convicted of his sin and come to repentance. And therefore be saved on the final day, on the day of judgment. It's important that we notice that here, what's behind what Paul is saying. He has every expectation that the man will be saved. And that is the point of proper church discipline, correct? It's restoration. It's to restore the individual. The goal of church discipline is not to injure or to hurt or to damage someone. The goal is restoration. It's reconciliation, repentance. We see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. If you'll recall a response uh, that, that that, that the church has given, a response to discipline that led to rejoicing by Paul. Paul says to be gentle with this one who's come back. Be gentle with this restored brother. Or we think of Galatians chapter 6, where it says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Right? That is the disposition. That is the attitude to lead to repentance and restoration. And so Paul is adamant here. He's adamant in this prescription. Discipline, excommunication must be done. Verse 6 says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He says that both the sin and the failure to address the sin has a polluting, defiling, corrupting result in the church. It will damage the church. It is destructive. And it will damage the witness of the church to the world as well. And this is going on and the church is doing what? They're boasting. They're being puffed up. And this proves his earlier point about their foolish thinking that they are already there. They've already arrived. We are full 
We are rich. We are wise. We are reigning. And this imagery that Paul uses, this illustration, uh, you don't need to be a baker to understand what he's saying about leaven and the dough, right? Unchecked sin, he's saying, will infect the church like yeast. A little will work through it and in it the whole batch of dough and affect the whole thing. God's church, God's colony of heaven here on earth, his living temple in Corinth, it cannot be what it's called to be with this corrupting uh, this corruption going on. The unchecked sin indeed will affect the church, will destroy the church, and also affects the reputation of the church in what the church stands for. Right? The very credibility of the gospel is compromised in failure to deal with this issue. And this is seen in the history of the church. Sin is not dealt with, and denominations begin to spoil and to rot. And so Paul says that the pure Unleavened dough with the church must not allow the leaven of sin to infect it. He's given them the problem that they were facing. This sin, the attitude of those in the church, not dealing with this issue. And then he's given them the prescription that they needed to do. Put the man out for the protection of the church and the integrity of the name of Christ and for their own good. And then thirdly, he tells them why they are to do this. Why? And this is key, right? This is the indicative. This is the what is true part. Paul has prescribed for them the action that they need to do, right? That was the imperative. And the imperative is based on what? It's based on the indicative that we see in verse 7, right? This is the point of their purity in verse 7. In verse 7 says this, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Right? I think it's the New American Standard that translates that. uh, That you may be a new lump as you really are, just as in fact you are, unleavened. That's the indicative. That's the reason why these arrogant, boastful, wicked, shameful things ought not to be done, ought not to be approved of, and why they must not be allowed to go without confrontation, without discipline. And the response to this defiling wickedness is strong and forceful from the Apostle Paul. Paul is telling them what? He's saying, that is not who you are. Therefore, you shouldn't be acting like that. You shouldn't be allowing that, let alone boasting about it. Why? Because you are pure. You are new. You are cleansed. You are unleavened. And how do we know? How do you know that, Paul says to the Corinthians? Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. You are a new lump, so don't be defiled again by old lump pollution. Right? Do you see what he's saying? In fact, you need to take these strong actions to not be defiled. That's how important this is, church. It was an old reformer that said, the Lord has made you clean. It's not for you to dirty yourself again. Right? It's not for us to dirty, but the Lord has made clean. And this is something that the Lord has set down in history that is there if we have eyes to see it. Right? We read from Exodus chapter 12 in our Old Testament reading this morning about the institution of the Passover. And it was there on the night of Passover that the people of God were delivered from Egypt and they were delivered from the influences of that pagan culture. God's people were to be separate from those pagans. And they would celebrate that by removing uh, all of the yeast from the house. 
And that, of course, pointed forward to Christ and the sacrifice of Himself, which removes the power and guilt of sin. It also represented God's people, their rejection of paganism. Right? What is true, and then what to do. And because Christ has delivered the Corinthians from the bondage of sin through His death and His resurrection, they must what? They therefore must eradicate from their lives any and all polluting factors. They were clean. It was not for them to defile themselves again. Because of what Christ has done, they were to remove from their lives all of these defiling factors. All sin represented in this illustration as what? As yeast. You've been delivered, Paul says. Act accordingly. Walk accordingly. Remove the sin that you may be new as you are, as you really are, as in fact you already are. It seems pretty clear when we break it down. And look at what he's saying. Public and salacious sin must be dealt with appropriately. We pray in those cases for what? For repentance, for restoral, for reconciliation. And that is the desired outcome, repentance of the sinner. And if not, if there is no repentance, he or she must be removed from the congregation. And all of this presupposes what? It presupposes the structure given in Scripture of membership, of accountability, and offers, and life lived in the body of Christ as a family, as His body. Do you believe, brothers and sisters, do you believe that you are a new lump? Do you know that? You're an unleavened lump. Do you trust the Word of God when it describes you as such? Do you believe it when it tells you that you are clean, that you are new in Christ? Do you believe that? God is not a man that he should lie. He cannot lie. He does not lie. If you've placed your trust in Christ, brothers and sisters, if he is yours and you are his, then this is describing you. You, we, are to protect our purity individually, yes, and corporately as his body. And why? Again, what does Paul say? Because our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And therefore we are new creations. We are new creations. You doubt. You are weak. Is that true of you? Do you doubt? Do you have trouble believing this? Over and against the weight of your sin and your own sense of uh, fallenness. If you do... You're not alone, right? We all doubt and we all struggle with this. But what are we to do? You look to the truth. And you look to the fact of Christ's accomplished, finished work, finished work on the cross for you. And you rejoice in the victory that he has worked for you. And you praise him that you are indeed a new creation. Paul goes on in verse 8. He says, Let us therefore celebrate the festival. Not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity sincerity and truth. Literally what it says there is, therefore let us keep festival, or let us celebrate the feast. And this gets at what our lives as children of the King, reborn and rejoicing in our lives in Christ. It is we who are to live in celebration, right? in celebration by virtue of who we are, what Christ has done for us. We're united to Him. And the way that the Word is built, it's a continuous action, not just a punctuated event, a punctuated celebration. 
It's not just let us celebrate the festival, but let us keep in celebration. Let us continue in festival and in celebration. And when we consider the context of what Paul is talking about here, the context of the passage, the reference to the Passover and the sacrifice and this celebration, there's an obvious connection here to the Lord's Supper, to the Lord's Supper, and particularly that the man who was in sin here, who was to be removed, would have been barred from the Lord's table. Right? As part of that discipline. And the actions and sins going on were displaying pollution and old life yeasty identity, right? Rather than what their true identity was. And they needed to be removed to preserve the integrity of Christ's people. They needed the believers there to be who they were, new creations in Christ. They were justified before God because of the merits of Christ. And they, like we, like you, dear Christian, are to take care to live lives of gratitude. Why? Because we are new. You have been cleansed by the work of Christ. We are on very dangerous grounds when we understand the gospel, yet live like pagans. There is a battle that rages within us. And the more we believe and trust the truth of God's word, and we trust that the war has been won, though the battle rages, the more we will live surrendered to the Spirit, walking in truth, growing in holiness. It is God's will for your lives, right? You want to know God's will for your life? 1 Thessalonians 4. It's your holiness. And He's provided a way to grow you. It's through His Word and through prayer and through the sacrament. Paul goes on in verse 9 and 10. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate... Uh, with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexual immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Right? And so this is one of those references uh, to a, a letter that had gone, some correspondence that took place prior to our First Corinthians. Right? If you remember from our study, the beginning of uh, our look into First Corinthians, we talked, we explained that there was uh, this previous letter that in God's sovereignty he has saw fit not to preserve for us. Uh, but that's what Paul, that's what's going on here. There's this reference, I wrote to you in my letter. Right? It's a previous letter. And Paul is reminding them that he has already told them to what? To not associate with sexually immoral people. The word is mixed up. Don't be mixed up with sexually immoral people. Such people were the characterization of the ethic of the culture. Right, the sexual ethic uh, in Corinth, the pagan ethic, they were characterized by that, even pushing the bounds of what that was. And the fruit of paganism then is debased, even as it is now in our day. Right, I'll spare you the list and the catalog of all the uh, gross, sexually immoral things that go on in our culture and are championed and lauded by the world. But the promiscuity in the first century, the, the gossip worship in the first, the goddess worship, rather, the first century, and the homosexuality rampant and accepted there in first century Corinth can be clearly seen in our culture today. It doesn't take long to look. Uh, you don't have to look very hard um, to encounter that. But God's people have always been called to do what? To live according to scriptures, to live according to his word, and in our culture, if we seek to do so, we are mocked and seen as puritanical crazies, 
right, for the things that we believe, a backward and old-fashioned. We don't, we don't accept every manner of deviancy that's, that's lauded and, and promoted in our culture. Not to speak of uh, pornography. Right? If you've ever read the statistics and its destructive nature, it is a blight to mankind, even in the church. We cannot compartmentalize our lives and our identity and our actions. And has been said by one of the great theologians long ago, you must be killing sin or sin will be killing you. You must be killing sin or it will be destroying you. Flee to Christ, brothers and sisters. Rest in Christ. Meditate on his work for you and his love for you. Meditate on his love for you and his sacrifice for your life and your soul. Bury yourself in his word, brothers and sisters. Avail yourself to the means of grace. Beg the Lord to give you an appropriate, passionate hatred for that sin that competes for his affection for him. And recognize that that's actually what's going on. Those addictions that we face and struggle with are competing with Jesus for your very heart and your affections. Refuse the hardening that comes from habitual sins. You must be bare before the Lord always, always. There are no hidden chambers of your life from which you keep Christ away from. Pray, brothers and sisters, pray, pray. And entrust yourselves to a trusted brother or sister to pray for you as well. Jesus died for your sins. You must believe this. You must know this. He died for the guilt of your sin. He died for the power, the bondage that it has over you. And he died for the habit of that sin. In him there is life and freedom and hope. You must flee to him, brothers and sisters. Love him. Hate your sin. Trust his word to you. And we see from these verses, verse 9 and 10, that the Corinthians had not followed the instructions given to them by Paul. And they had not understood the instructions given to him. Right? He says, I I wrote in in this letter uh, not to be mixed up with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning those of this world, right? And he goes on. And this is something that's all too common in our church, uh, in the church today as well, by some thinking this very thing, right? But Paul's point is not that they are to stay away from non-believers, but to stay away from acting and thinking like them once they've come to Christ. And he makes this clear in verse 11. But now I'm writing you to not associate, right? That's the word again, to not, not be mixed up with anyone who bears the name of brother, he is guilty and he lists these things sexual immorality greed idolatry reviler drunkard swindler not even to eat with such a one and all of these things by the way that he lists in this verse uh, verse 11 um, they are listed in the book of deuteronomy uh, in these exclusionary codes these things that we're to exclude ourselves from right so these aren't new again these are these are principles that god has laid down from the very beginning and we see here again God's consistency and the continuity of redemptive history. God expected certain things from his covenant people, from the covenant community in the Old Testament. And he still expects them in the New Testament. Don't be mixed up with those paramountly. Don't be mixed up with those who profess to be Christians, but who live boastfully and pridefully like pagans. We must be careful to not misunderstand Paul here. He is not admonishing us to shun people who are struggling with sin. That's not whom he's talking about. All of us struggle with sins in our lives. 
Paul's references to those who live in sin and rationalize or self-justify their sinful actions. He's talking about people who bear no sign of concern that they have offended grossly, offended their Lord. People who have no repentance, who have no sorrow. Paul says, we're not even to eat with such people. You'll remember in our study, those of you who who, uh, attended, our study of meals, meals in Scripture, and the great weight and significance of table fellowship, eating together, and all that that meant. Sharing a meal, of course, meant uh, establishing a bond with the person to whom you're eating with. Are we imperfect? Even as Christians, yes, of course we are. But we're not to live in habitual, justified sin, unrepentantly sinful lives. What is to be the disposition and the attitude of our hearts? We have broken hearts for the sin. We have a sorrow that leads to repentance, that we've offended our Lord. We're to be humble. We're to live in humility and sincerity and honest. Honesty, those are the things that are to characterize who we are. We know from from what we were delivered from. We know what we were saved from. This is something to fail to do so, something that is gross even to the world, right? To justify and to live in a way that betrays our profession. This doesn't bode well with those who see us acting this way. It's dishonest. And it's been said that the greatest single cause for atheism in the world is Christians acting like the world. I don't know if I agree entirely with that sentiment, but there's some truth behind that. Some truth behind it. And then Paul concludes in verses 12 to 13. He says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Right? And so what he's saying is pagans, those outside the church, they're fulfilling their job description. They're pagans. It's not for Paul, it's not for me, it's not for you to judge those outside the church like we would those who are inside the church. God will deal with them. God will judge them. But we, brothers and sisters, like the Corinthians, are commanded to judge those within the church according to their life and according to their beliefs, right? Life and doctrine. But there's a a proper and an improper way to do this. The, The way to do it is not in a smug self-righteous attitude. Right? I don't hear it so often, but I used to hear the term when I was younger. You know, someone was uh, uh, like this, they would say that they're, oh, they're holier than thou. Right? Trying to use the old King James English and you know, this pretense that they were better than everyone else. That is not the way we are to evaluate those in the church. How are we to act towards those who are struggling with sin? Those who are weak in faith? They must be nurtured. They must be reassured. They must be comforted by what? By the promises of the gospel for them. But those who profess to be believers and live with no regard to God's law, like pagans, they're to be expelled from the church unless and until they repent because of the corrupting nature of their behavior. Evil in the midst of the church like this, unaddressed, cannot be tolerated because it what? It undermines the proclamation of the gospel. Our confrontation towards those outside the church is what? It's not to judge them. It's to evangelize them. Right? The gospel carries with it its own offense. We don't need to add to it with our judgments. All of us Christians, 
We are sinners saved by grace. And as Paul told us in chapter 4, remember last week, all that we have, we've received. All that we have is a gift from God. Our gracious God who loves and cares for us. And that being the case, who are we to judge those who are not Christians? We are certainly to confront them with the claims of the gospel, with the claims of Christ. But we shouldn't be shocked that the world is acting like the world. We are to tell them the truth in love and trust that God will deal with them. He'll take care of them in, his, in a way that he sees fit. And so as we wrap up here, brothers and sisters, we must remember, we must remember that central point and that truth for our lives. We must remember and return again and again to our identity. And that is in Christ. You're a new lump, right? What does it say? You are, really are unleavened. You really are new. This is true. If anyone is in Christ, what does he say in 2 Corinthians? He is a new creation. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Also from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Right? That's who the scriptures say that you are, if you belong to Jesus Christ. He became sin that you would be righteous. His righteousness for you in Christ. You are a new lump, brothers and sisters. Have you ever thought about that? You are a new lump, not an old leaven lump. Well, you may be like me and sometimes, maybe many times, you doubt your cleanness or your newness. The lingering sin in our lives has a way of of uh, bringing that doubt again and again and that uncertainty and that questioning the reality of this. Maybe you feel pretty dirty and defiled and hopeless at times. If that is you, brothers and sisters, if you think that and you doubt, again, what are you to do? We are to remember what Christ has done. We are to remember what Christ has done and remember the declaration that he has given about us. Right? The Spirit truly has defeated our doubting hearts. He is greater than our hearts. Right? Yes, we are weak. We doubt at times. But may we praise God that He has given us His sure word. And remember His word to us when our hearts doubt. Remember 1 John, 1 John chapter 3. It says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. God is greater than our heart. And because you are clean and you are pure, you are a new lump based on the work of our King and Redeemer. Because of that, we must strive to protect the purity of the church. So may we indeed watch our lives closely. May we be ready to receive correction in love when we fail. May we, when we are made aware of our blind spots, and when we are made aware of our overt sinning, may we go from this place back into a culture, right? back into a culture so permeated with non-believing, non-believer things. May we go full, overfilled, spilling over with the love that we've received in Christ. And most importantly, may you go knowing this, who you are. May you go knowing who you are, children of the King, cleansed and connected to that King, and to his people, the body of Christ.